Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. By all accounts, Winston Churchill was an alcoholic, and yet he functioned at a very high level until the end of his long life. Does everyone who uses a potential addictive substance become addicted? Are all substance abusers impaired in their work and social lives? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Our guest today is Dr. Bertha Madras, who serves as the Deputy Director of Demand Reduction in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Prior to this government post, she was Professor of Psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is an expert on drug addiction and has authored over 130 papers and book chapters, as well as receiving 16 patents. Welcome, Dr. Madras. We are pleased to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Can you review for our audience what the risk of addiction for various drugs is? That is, if somebody tries a drug once or initially, what is their risk over the coming years to become an uncontrolled user? And I have in mind several different drugs, so perhaps we could take these one at a time. Yes, certainly. It's actually quite a complex question to address because... And there's no simple answer. We can, I can give you some statistics. The reason it's complex is that we know that the drug interaction with that individual, the genetic platform on which they reside, the environment in which they live and have access to drugs or not, all converge. And so for each individual, there is at present a zero chance of predicting positively whether or not that person will become addicted. I don't think we have that capability. We do have certain knowledge of high-risk people. High-risk people certainly are people who have developmental disorders. For example, kids that are untreated with ADHD, kids with oppositional defiant disorder with problems in schools. These young people have a much higher risk factor for going on to develop a drug abuse and addiction problem. So there should be vigilant with this cohort. A second cohort that is at very high risk in youth are kids who don't do well in school. They have some estimates five to seven times higher potential for becoming users and abusers and addicted. Now, with regard to overall statistics, we can say that in general, the minimum potential for becoming addicted is approximately 1 in 9 or 1 in 10. That's the lowest number of people who use, who then progress to addiction. Is that uh, true across all substance categories? That's the minimal. For marijuana, it hovers between 1 in 9 and 1 in 10. What about for cigarettes? For cigarettes, it's higher, and it's over 20%. And the reason that it's higher may not have anything to do with the addictive potential of cigarettes, but the fact that they are free, legal, and easily available. And cigarette use generally starts at a very, you know, at a young age. What about alcohol? Alcohol, the addictive potential, again, has been estimated by James Anthony and his cohorts, and that's approximately 13% or so, 13 to 15%, so that there, again, one has to factor in the fact that it's free, it's available, and in some people it obviously has aversive effects, so that it's certainly not an easy ride for some people when, when they drink alcohol, and that's why a lot of alcohol drinks include sugar. 
to lessen the burden of the taste of it. What about cocaine and heroin? How addictive are they? Cocaine is approximately 15%, and heroin is in the 20% for those who initiate use. And, you know, one has to, again, factor in how complex this issue is, because for heroin, the vast majority of users self-inject. Inhalation is increasing, but self-injection is the most common form of use. Now, in order to cross that barrier of sticking a needle into a vein, you already have to have a certain personality type because most people have a ferocious aversion to needles. So even though the addictive potential appears to be higher for heroin, there's already a subpopulation there that has the bravado and the desire to self-inject. So as I said, even though these numbers appear to perhaps help you rank relative addiction potential, I don't think that they really address what is the biological addictive potential because so many other factors come into play. You know, for, for decades, it was very glamorous to smoke, and that enhanced the probability of people using and using very frequently. So I think we cannot say with certainty that these numbers are absolute and reflect the interaction of a drug's chemistry with that of the brain. So there's some very important take-home messages from this. First thing is that it's very difficult and possibly scientifically invalid to rank one substance as being more addictive to the other, partly because the data doesn't exist and partly because a lot of this has to do with whether the drug is illicit or illicit, whether it's freely available. And then, of course, in some cases, as with heroin, there's a barrier to use in terms of injection. So first off, it's not terribly meaningful to really, at this time, rank these drugs in terms of their addictive potential. Second thing is that it's pretty clear that Perhaps 10 to 20 percent of first-time users will ultimately go on to become addicted, which, of course, is the other take-home message. The majority of first-time users don't become addicted. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Bertha Madras, Deputy Director of Demand Reduction in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Today we are discussing the myths of drug addiction. So is there a real population of long-term occasional users, people who can use these drugs, cigarettes, alcohol? Well, I think alcohol is clear, but what about typically harder illicit drugs such as cocaine and heroin? Is there a real population of long-term occasional users who don't suffer addiction or injury? I would be hard-pressed to be able to answer that accurately. Some of these people we will never know about. There are anecdotal reports as well as some reports in the literature of people who chip heroin, for example, who use frequently but are not necessarily compromised. I think that's the vast minority. If one really wants to look at what happens after repeated use of cocaine and heroin, I welcome you to join me in a detox center, in a treatment center, or in the morgue because the consequences cannot be understated for these drugs. So cocaine and heroin are different in that regard than alcohol, is that correct? This is quite an interesting question, you know, the division of hard and soft drugs. I never subscribe to that division because 
the hardness or the softness of a drug really is defined by what the consequences are to that individual. And for some individuals, alcohol can ravage their lives. There's no question about it. For the vast majority of people who drink alcohol, their lives are not ravaged. But for marijuana, for example, we, up until very recently, up until 2000 or so, the word addiction was rarely applied to marijuana. We now know that marijuana not only is addictive, but it has very frank withdrawal syndrome. The withdrawal is not as robust as it is for alcohol or for heroin because it leaches from the body so slowly. It's very lipophilic. It's fat-soluble. Therefore, it doesn't clear the body within a few hours like alcohol does, and heroin clears within six hours or so. So you don't see that, you know, this terrible withdrawal, but you definitely have a withdrawal syndrome for marijuana. And more people show up in treatment centers for marijuana addiction than for any other drug. And more kids are addicted to marijuana in our nation than to any other drug and show up for treatment for marijuana. So it's very hard to say there are these divisors. The reason that cocaine and heroin entered into this hard drug, soft drug dichotomy in the beginning was because for heroin, the withdrawal was so robust and so uncomfortable that people said that your your body is really, really changed in response. But I don't think withdrawal per se is an indicator of how addictive a drug is. And it probably should not be in the criteria for addiction because every single drug we know that is used for psychoactive purposes eventually leads to neuroadaptation. We don't escape neuroadaptation by designating a drug soft or hard. So with alcohol, the majority of users are occasional users who suffer no apparent injury. But that cannot be, just because that's true for alcohol, that does not necessarily hold for cocaine or heroin. Is that correct? That does not necessarily hold for cocaine or heroin for a a number of reasons. An occasional user of alcohol, one drink per evening for females, two drinks per evening for males, those are the cutoff points. In general, that level of use does not compromise one's cognitive ability. For cocaine, a single dose of cocaine is intoxicating, and that compromises your ability to function. That's a big difference. And that is true for all the other illicit drugs. That's true for heroin. It's true for marijuana, and it applies to LSD and ecstasy and and, uh, methamphetamine, etc., Once you compromise your cognitive skills, that becomes a problem because the consequences can be, even with an acute dose, can be violence, can be accidents, can be a host of adverse events that you never planned for, you never anticipated, and suddenly you have to deal with. Is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Well, there are some data in the literature that say that people who are at risk for high-risk-seeking behavior have a higher propensity to use drugs than those who are risk-aversive. There is some literature there, but I think our most probably objective data is going to come from genetics because there is clearly a genetic component to drugs. And interestingly enough, one of the genes that's emerging, one of the class of genes that keeps recurring 
for nicotine, for methamphetamine, are ICAMs. These are cell adhesion molecules that are involved in bringing cells together during the process of, of learning new information. So I think that I would like to lean towards the genetic base for addictive personality rather than some of these other factors because I still think that we don't have definitive answers with regard to addictive personalities. I want to thank Dr. Bertha Madras, who has been our guest. We have been discussing myths of drug addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would really like to hear from you. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.